Hello and welcome to Stoicism, Philosophy as a Way of Life. My name is Donald Robertson and today's guest is Brian Johnson, the founder and CEO of Heroic Public Benefit Corporation. Brian is the author of a new book called Arate, Activate Your Heroic Potential. Hi, Brian. Now, do I see where you are at the moment and what it's like there? Donald, great to see you. I am in the country outside of Austin. It is uh, early winter and I am enjoying uh, everything that's going on out here. How are you? I'm very well. I'm in Montreal. I was just saying earlier, we just for the first time got our first snow. And so I'm looking out the window like it's like being a little bit like being in a snow globe at the moment. Um, So... So try not to be too distracted by the scenery while I'm talking. Um, so let's get right into it then and talk about your new book, Arate. Like, do you want to just give us a, a quick overview and tell us what's that about? Yeah, the way I frame it up is, um, as you know, you know, tattooed my body with it, wearing the T-shirt right now, named the book. It's the one-word summation of my life's philosophy, having studied ancient wisdom, modern science, and trying to understand how to live a good life in the modern world. And, you know, when I when I really boiled it down to a single word, it came down to arete. As you know, if you ask the ancient, you know, Greek philosophers, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, and the ancient Roman Stoics, how to live a good life, they'd answer you essentially in a single word, arete. And again, as you know, we translate that as virtue or excellence. But I see that it has a deeper meaning, something closer to being your best self moment mm-hmm. to moment to moment. And um, just became clear that, okay, that's the one word summation of my life's work. Let's name the book, Arate. And, and it's one of those things where I, I'm somewhat mystified as to how that word ever left our cultural you know, vernacular. It's such a beautiful, powerful word that um, I think more of us should know what it, what it means uh, who aren't really deep into stoicism or ancient philosophy. Yeah, I think being your best self uh, is is actually quite a good way of articulating what the word means to the ancient Greeks as well. And I I think you're absolutely right. You know, there's a whole book in this actually about words that have disappeared, concepts Hmm. that have disappeared from our language. Anyone that studies the classics will think there's a really cool idea, there's a cool concept here that the Greeks and Romans seem to take for granted. We don't even have a word for this anymore. People Hmm. have forgotten about something that we used to know. It's funny because you know, we were talking about tattoos. You and I both uh, enjoy the ink, right? So on Arate, I have Arate on my right forearm, and on my left forearm, I have heroic, which is another example of a word yeah. that, that, again, hero, of course, is in our modern um, vocabulary, but we don't understand what it meant. Right. In ancient Greece, again, the word hero didn't mean tough guy or killer of bad guy. It meant protector. So from my vantage point, you know, we're each called to be obviously the heroes of our own lives, but to protect that which we value and cherish in our world. And um, so redefining um, and kind of rebranding, if you will, both Arte and Heroic um, is really important to me. And I got to check out that book you're talking about with the, uh, all the ancient words uh, and then excited to get into my book. But tell me more about that real quick. Oh, sorry. I was just saying that would be, that's a book that someone should write. I oh, think. I thought you said it existed. Yeah. Dude, please write no. it. I know that you've been going deep in your own work. Please write that book. I'll give give us the handbook. Uh, I'll tell you the next book. I've just written a book about Socrates. The next book I want to write is about anger. Actually, I'm gonna so I'm gonna come back to that as a little teaser. Like maybe later on in the conversation today, we can talk about that. That's my favorite subject at the moment. Hmm. But uh, do you want to say a little bit more about the your book, Arity? Yeah. So uh, you know, I had like 80 percent of a normal book written. It was just, you know, normal 250, 300 page, uh, not not to be pejorative, but kind of fluffy book, you know, longer chapters and just the way a book is supposed to be written. And I got to that point and I realized this isn't the book that, that yeah. I want to write, you know, and my style is much more pithy, yeah. more wisdom and less time, you know, micro chapters kind of idea. Um, so long story short, I wound up writing a book with 451 micro chapters yeah. organized around seven objectives, which form the basis of our coach certification program and a lot of stuff we've scientifically studied. Um, and uh, the idea being there's 451 degrees Fahrenheit that are required mm-hmm. to ignite a fire. And I think a lot of people are going through life these days with a bit of apathy and and, and even cynicism and, and approaching nihilism, you know, and just getting to that point where we activate 
um, mm-hmm. our heroic potential. And so 451 ideas organized around these seven objectives. Um, any idea hopefully can make a significant, you know, distinction theoretically and practically in your life. In mm-hmm. an aggregate, I hope can, uh, you know, we have a shot at, at helping you go to the next level and activating your your best potential. I wanted to ask you as well. So it's kind of an interesting format that you chose to write it in all these short sections. Um, and then maybe it's more suited to to a modern audience as well. I think the, the expectations um, and the needs of modern readers have evolved uh, even during our, our lifetime. I wonder, do you think that your perspective or your approach has changed over the years, um, perhaps since your, your previous writing or the work that you've been doing, teaching courses? Like how does this, um, does this book express a, a shift in your perspective in any way or like, has it changed from your earlier work? Yeah, I hope that my my perspective uh, has matured, and, and hopefully, there's been a, a you know a depth in the wisdom um, that I know we're going to talk about in a moment as well. But it's really, I, we've I've been talking about these ideas for a long time now. So you know, with the coaches, we've worked with ten thousand coaches now from a hundred countries, and um, we figured out a way to kind of integrate ancient wisdom and modern science with these seven objectives. Knowing the ultimate game, and I talk about, and you inspired me with the choice of Hercules. I, I you know, mm-hmm. one of the micro chapters, one of several in which I reference you and your work, which has had a deep impact on my thinking. Uh, you know, that choice of Hercules and 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 knowing the ultimate game and how to play it well, and the fact this is mm-hmm. a twenty five hundred year old challenge, and then uh, you know, forging anti fragile confidence is a big idea of mine that I'm excited about. Um, but these are a lot of ideas that I've been exploring, and um, it's in many ways a curation of the best ideas. Mm-hmm. I reference over 200 different authors, um, hundreds of different books, and really just tried to create a um, an integration of what I've been working on for the last 10, 15 plus years, um, really 20 years, um, in a way that's palatable, ex- you know, inspiring yet grounded and um, and really practical, and, and as you know, rooted in, in ancient Stoicism with and again, you're, you're my, my main source of how stoicism is modern cognitive behavioral therapy and all the things that work practically in the modern scientific approach. I think we're all kind of doing a similar thing in the sense that we, you know, we there's a lot of really amazing stuff out there. And it actually, it kind of frustrates me in a way, or it almost saddens me to think that people don't know about it. I think that's very, when I first came to writing and, and teaching, one of the things that motivated me was wanting to just show people all this cool stuff, like Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus and Seneca that I'd been reading. And then I realized, you know, like it's not accessible to a lot of people or they don't see maybe the relevance of, of some of the points. So kind of curating that information and parsing it and translating it into modern terms is something that I see you as doing. And, you know, I've, I've spoken to a number of your students um, in various uh, contexts. And, you know, the, I think you're doing a great job of introducing them, uh, not just to stoicism, but like you say, to some modern psychological research, you know, to other stuff that you're deriving from the classics, ideas from Seligman and Aristotle, and all this kind of stuff. Um, it's you know, it's a privilege in a way uh, to be able to be the person that introduces a new audience to, to guys like Marcus Aurelius, don't you think? A hundred percent. And then again, coming back to you, it, you know, my main thing is moving from theory to practice to mastery. So your distinction that the ancient philosophers were warriors of the mind, not mere librarians, is one of the most con- themes I come back to most consistently and persistently and really kind of waking people up to, look, these are these are ancient ideas, you know, uh, embodied by noble men and women that have been proven by science that will work if you work them, but you need to move from theory to practice to mastery. So again, your frame on the librarian vis-a-vis the, the warrior of the mind has been uh, made a deeper imprint on me. And that resonates. When I tell that to you know my students and our community and our coaches, they're like, yeah, 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 that's exactly it. It's easy to think about these ideas and enough logic chopping. Let's get to work, you know, <laughs> quit arguing and start being, right? Actually, what you're saying makes me think of something. Um, I've got a, it prompts a question I've got for you in a way. In 
the clinical setting and psychotherapy. When I was a young guy, I kind of stumbled across the Stoics and I was learning about CBT and I saw the connection between them and I was very excited about it. And then gradually I became kind of disappointed again because I realized that psychotherapists didn't really know much about Stoicism. People that did CBT quoted Epictetus all the time, but it was always the same quote. And I was amazed that they didn't then go and read Enchiridion and find out Mm -hmm. more about it. Now, you've worked with thousands of uh, life coaches, uh, training them over the years, and you're really passionate about the relevance of Stoicism and other philosophy. But when you first started doing it, I suspect that there wasn't quite as much interest among trainee life coaches in classical philosophy. I mean, we've seen things like Stoicism gain popularity over the years. I just wondered, like, what's been your perception of that? Have you seen people become, over the last 10 years or so, progressively more interested in in learning about philosophy? Yeah, 100%. Again, thanks to you. Thanks to Ryan, um, you two in particular, and of course, you know, a number of others, um, William B. Irvine, who have done great work. But what I found is that I think people are tired of being told, you know, all this secrety, you know, self-helpy, palm-palm waving stuff. They want true, deep, grounded wisdom that's also validated by modern science. So I've, yeah. yes, I've seen that surge, but but I've always had a great response um, from my discussions of this wisdom mm-hmm. because it's so profound. And as you know, I go in and I pull out the big ideas in the philosopher's notes. So yeah. Well, I don't find Seneca dry at all. I find his writing to be astonishing. Same with uh, Epictetus, whether it's the Enchiridion or his discourses. I mean, you could feel like you're in his classroom. You know, you're the one taking the notes, right? Um, And Aurelius, the same thing. But I think the wisdom, especially when it's distilled, is so compelling. And it works. You know, the Mm -hmm. idea that it just, all of the ideas are so practically relevant when you make that simple step forward. I'll tell you my frustration. I, I'm a huge student of the positive psychology movement, fan of Martin mm-hmm. Seligman and all the yeah. others. Uh, I think right. they're missing the fundamentals. Yeah, so the thing go. that frustrates me the most with therapy and, and psychiatry is um, we know that your physiology drives a lot more of your psychology um, than one may think. Um, so I want to see that brought to mm-hmm. life more, even if they keep the origin of the story of CBT shrouded. I, I can live with that. But prescribe eating and moving and sleeping and really Mm. practicing these basic fundamentals um, in order to help people increase their sense of flourishing and and eudaimonia and whatnot. I thought you were also going to say that the the positive psychology movement, like CBT, doesn't say that much about like classical philosophy, the the, the stuff that that you're into. Although you like, it's obviously really, really relevant a lot of the things that they're saying and they do touch on it it's usually just kind of in passing so there's a huge opportunity there because for sure one thing you know for sure and i know for sure is the people that are studying these subjects your trainee life coaches and also clients want to know about ancient philosophy because it gives them a bigger perspective um it makes it more meaningful A hundred percent, which is what you and I have talked about in our chats when I'm on the other side, you know, interviewing you is the meaning that's lost, the soul, the true, you know, bigger picture. Um, But I think the reality is most of the academics don't know that there's that connection, you know, in the therapist. And um, and I think you're right. I think there's a hunger um, among so many of us to connect this to ancient truths. And again, stoicism is is not echoing, but is the wisdom in Stoicism is echoed across all the other teachings, whether it's mm-hmm. the Gita or Confucius or um, fill in the blank. I mean, these are the same basic ideas um, repeated across different cultures. And um, it's it, it's been, been fun to, uh, to work with you to make it more and more practical. Now, I know because a lot of the people that happen to listen to this podcast are particularly interested in Stoicism. I wondered if you could say a little bit more about how you feel about stoicism and how it's influenced you over the years i know it's something that you're really into you know actually this is audio so people won't be able to see you've got marcus Aurelius behind you and you have uh you've got an arate t-shirt on and everything right now what what's been the impact of stoicism on your thinking and your work over the years yeah it's been profound um you know gone into all the source materials again including your work etc um i used to have epictetus uh, do i 
Well, I put him back up. I got Epictetus and Aurelius. I actually changed my heroes around because I was told I have a dude wall, which of course I do. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm flanked by my two favorite heroes, Epictetus, who's the teacher I most admire, his intensity, his logical mm -hmm. coherence, but his unapologetic, playful, uh, you know, admonitions to his students I can feel when I'm reading his stuff. That's deeply inspired me. Um, and then, you know, Mark is kind of the reluctant uh, leader. I feel that in many ways, frankly. You know, a part of me would prefer just to read and write and teach and think and repeat. And I feel called to lead um, with our public benefit corporation. So his humility, his willingness to play his role well and and I bring those two guys up and a few other heroes every mm -hmm. single morning in my meditation after I do um, a few other things, one of which might be interesting to you, a virtue kind of reflection mm -hmm. and meditation. But what do we, they, I invite them into my, my life in my mind, kind of like a Dumbledore in his old headmasters on his wall at Hogwarts, you know, my pictures come alive, alive and they, and they literally talk to me. So Every morning, they're literally with me, and um, it's their wisdom, of course, is profound. But it's who they were that most yeah. inspires me. I, I view them as you know, knowing there are no perfect sages, but as close to to perfect sages as we're going to get in their respective areas. And um, that really, really inspires me, and has for years now. I've often been puzzled about what it is about stoicism that that seems to capture people's imaginations. It's got a lot of there's a lot of good advice in stoicism that really resonates with people, but you can find it some of it, a lot of it in other literature as well. But people often seem to be really attracted to the Stoics. And I think it's the characters, like you say, of Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius in particular. I remember when the movie Gladiator came out, which was a long time ago now. It was uh, it was twenty three years ago. That, that movie hmm. came out you know Russell Crowe's getting on a bit now like time <laughs> flies but when that movie came out I met a bunch of people guys mostly that gone out and read the meditations of Marcus Aurelius they'd never read any books like that before but they read it because Richard Harris plays Marcus Aurelius in the first act and that kind of got them interested in, in the subject because they could sort of visualize ancient Rome you know they could visualize Marcus Aurelius and they found it strangely relatable Mm -hmm. in a surprising way. Now there's a sequel coming out um, in the next year or so. I think Ridley Scott's making Gladiator 2. You know, so fingers crossed it might have some kind of references to Marcus Aurelius in it or Stoicism. Maybe we'll see another wave of people um, becoming oh, interested be in the subject. It fires up their imagination, like you said earlier, in a way that maybe kind of academic discussions of the subject don't. Yeah. What interests me is, is it reaches a different demographic. There's people out there, that some of these people would never pick up a self-help book normally, but they kind of became interested in history and the movies, and then that got them into the subject. Um, I wonder, like, do, you, do you think there's something about Marcus Aurelius and about Epictetus that kind of captures people's imaginations? Have you found that? Yeah, well, I think it's a good point, too, just to go back to your, your point about people who may not consider themselves students of self-help, in quotes, and I don't care for that phrase in general, but self-development is an ancient art. I mean, this, again, mm -hmm. you elucidate that so beautifully in all of your work. This was a noble act. And so to make this process of striving to be our best selves in service to something bigger than ourselves, um, sexy, cool, something that people find attractive. Like when I bought Tony Robbins, I was 2 a.m., you know, 25 years ago. I'm the guy at 2 a.m., not feeling it in my life, I'm looking at the infomercial and I get it. And I literally immediately took the personal power to put it into my luggage in a box in my closet. Nope, nothing's wrong with me. You know, <laughs> I don't have that. So how do we rebrand this process of striving to be our best selves? And I think mm -hmm. that Aurelius and Epictetus and the Stoics and then modern science as well, give us mm -hmm. an opportunity to do so with integrity, with nobility, with a sense of purpose that doesn't have the, yeah. um, the, the, whatever you want to call it, that often comes with the self-help stuff that can get yeah. a bit ungrounded and can get a bit unscientific and get a bit too mm -hmm. manicky, you know? Um, so I do think that there's an avenue that, that this work has provided, um, yours and mine for people who don't, associate with that and don't want to associate with that. And then again, you're how to think like a Roman emperor. What a brilliant title. What a brilliant book bringing the life of, of um, a great man to life. Um, but yeah, I think that there, Seneca, of course, is the most 
in many ways, interesting character among the three, right? Mm-hmm. I wish we knew more about Musonius Rufus. I mean, I think about, wow, how cool would that have been <laughs> to be there yeah. with him, you know? Um, but I think there's something about the classic nature of it in a world where everything is gimmicky and extrinsic yeah. and not virtuous, um, that they just provide a ballast and a sense of, um, of meaning in their own embodiment of these ideals, right? Well, Freud's approach to psychoanalysis is kind of a big deal in 20th century history, but it only really flourished for less than a century, whereas Stoicism was a living, thriving cultural movement for around about five centuries in the ancient world. And then its legacy continued through Christianity and so on down through the centuries. So you're talking about something that kind of has a, you know, a staying power. Like mm-hmm. it was around for for a long time. You also reminded me of something else, a bit of trivia. Um, I the, I saw a survey years and years ago that the BBC Radio conducted of books that people had bought or been given that they didn't read. Like, and the the top five were dominated by self help books, right? Mm. So I think a lot of people buy self help books, or they're given them at Christmas or whatever, and they just gather dust. Right, they kind of like the idea of it, but they can't really be bothered doing the the work yeah. or, or reading. It doesn't engage with them. I guess one of the things about stoicism is that people like it's like going to the movies, learning about Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus. They they feel a connection with these characters, and that seems to be a bit more engaged. There are stories mm-hmm. like that capture their imagination that that go with these classical texts. Now, you mentioned Tony Robbins, and you mentioned positive psychology, and we've talked a lot about, about stoicism, and I know that you have lots of different influences. So I just wanted to ask you about that. You know, what do you think your main influences are? What other influences do you have uh, apart from the Stoics? Yeah, it's interesting because I've been thinking about my my favorite uh, two heroes who are, as I said, Epictetus and uh, Aurelius as um, my teacher and kind of um, philosopher and CEO proxies. My two living equivalents are Phil Stott's as a teacher and John Mackey as a leader, um, particularly of, he founded um, and was the CEO of Whole Foods. Two personal friends of mine and mentors of mine, but Phil Stutz is by far the deepest influence on me. Um, Phil's kind of in many ways a modern Epictetus who, I don't know if you've seen the documentary Stutz. He's a movie star now. Yeah, now he is. I mean, I'm so happy the world gets to see him. You know, he and I have done approaching 450 one-on-one sessions over the last seven years. Um, but if you if people listening haven't seen Stutz uh, on Netflix, it's a phenomenal um, documentary. You know, you got a therapist that drops f bombs, who's challenged the whole therapeutic model. You know, his joke in his new book is my my practice differs from typical therapy, and this is a you know NYU MD in one critical regard, it works. <laughs> There's like, there's a practical application and an audacity to say, this doesn't work, this does, let's go. Um, but he's he's had the deepest impact on me um, in one idea in particular, which we can connect to stoicism. So, you know, Ryan's obstacle is the way, that idea that you can use life's obstacles to get stronger. I now call that anti-fragile confidence and have operationalized that in a way that um. Uh, frankly, I'm personally very proud of, and I've seen to be very effective in my life and the people we've trained. Phil Stutz calls that emotional stamina, your ability to handle pain, uncertainty, hard work in the modern world. But his formula is what changed my life, which is the worse you feel, the more committed you need to be to your protocol. So the worse you feel, the more committed you are to your protocol or practicing your philosophy to use that phrase in this context. So I've translated that into anti-fragile confidence, but that one piece of of wisdom, um, which sounds very obvious when I say it out loud, but if you actually move from librarian to warrior on that and you truly use life's obstacles to become stronger, like you're going to the gym and lifting weights, um, things change significantly. And that that's frankly the biggest um, thing I'm most proud of, again, in the book and the coach work we do and all that stuff. I think we can riff on that a little bit and talk about it. It's a very, I think you brought up something very interesting. It's a very, like you say, it's a very, it's like a trope. It's a theme that runs through stoicism, this idea that the obstacle is away and it's articulated in a number of different ways. So sometimes I think it's useful to explore an idea by thinking, what would the opposite be? And I think in a way, the opposite of seeing suffering as a motivation would be 
complaining about it a lot and doing nothing. Um, and I think we see quite a lot of that in life generally. We see a lot of it on the internet. I think as a clinician, as a therapist, I see that when I'm talking to clients. Often in the initial consultation with a client, what they'll do is they'll talk a lot about how frustrated they are with something, how awful it is, you know, and they're kind of venting or in a sense complaining about it. But it raises a question, if it's so awful, why haven't you been motivated to do something about it sooner? Freud, of all people, I'm not a big fan of Freud, but Freud raised this point. Freud's best paper is called Mourning and Melancholia. Why, in many ways, he, he, that's where he had some of his best ideas. And Freud said he thought it was strange that his depressed clients would often talk about how awful their life was uh, at great length in his sessions for many, many hours, but, but didn't really seem to be motivated to make changes. Right. So how can we make that flip that switch that goes from complaining about something or ruminating about it to taking our pain and our suffering and using it as a kind of fuel to take action and to persevere? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love Let's go that. Let's go back to your point on what's the opposite. So what's the opposite of using life's challenges to get stronger? To your point, you're a victim. So a victim complains, criticizes, yeah. blames, puts agency outside of themselves, just wants to pull the covers over their head and go back to bed. The opposite of a victim, you move from victim to creator to hero. That's the, you know, the, the hero is, is moving toward the front lines. They hear the sound of battle and they go toward it. They're not running away from it and complaining about it. Um, but I think the opposite or the word, the way to define that experience where when life hits you and you break is fragility. You're fragile. And now most people think that the best you can do is be resilient, that you can handle more pressure, then you break down, then you bounce back faster. But Nassim Taleb, he's the one who coined the word anti-fragile. What's the opposite of fragility? What if when you get hit by life, you got stronger, not just endured the pain, but got stronger? Then you'd be anti-fragile. I have goosebumps I say that. I love that word. So then the question is, well, how do you become anti-fragile? Um, and then we come back to Phil in a moment. But his metaphor is the wind will extinguish a candle, but it will fuel a fire. Same thing, obviously, that Aurelius and, and Ryan's riffing on and his obstacles away. So then the question is, how do you operationalize that idea? And so I combine anti-fragility and confidence. So I'm going to mispronounce this. How do you say confidere in Latin? Is that one of your 300 words you're going to go record next week? So confidence comes from two little uh, ancient words, con, fidere, however it's pronounced. Intense trust is what confidence means. So my, I, I love that word. And the way that I look at it is, look, intense trust in what? Confidence in what? That things are going to go the way you want? Sometimes, but obviously not all the time. Intense trust that you have what it takes to respond to whatever life throws at you. But if we want to build intense trust in any relationship, you have to do what you say you will do. So if I didn't show up when we were scheduled to be here, you might give me one pass because we know each other. But if I don't do that again, you wouldn't trust me and you shouldn't trust me. So my take on that applied to our lives is if you want to trust yourself, if you want to have intense confidence in yourself, you have to do what you say you will do. If you say you're going to eat, you're going to move, you're going to sleep in certain ways, you're going to spend time with your kids without your phone, mundane things, and you consistently don't do those things, you're eroding your trust every time. Stated positively, as you start doing those things, especially when you don't feel like doing those things and you have the wisdom and the discipline, um, especially when life is hitting you hard, then you can start forging anti-fragile confidence. And instead of breaking and being fragile when life hits you, you slow down and say, oh, my joke is the heroic gods have blessed us. I used to say the stoic gods before I founded heroic. The stoic gods have blessed us with a chance to practice our philosophy. Let's go. And then in those moments that used to break you and extinguish your little candle, now you're practicing your philosophy with even more rigor. And that very thing that used to break you makes you stronger. Now yeah. we're forging anti-fragile confidence. And again, getting three, five, seven percent better at that is life changing. But literally, because now you're not going off the rails, doing all the vicious in quotes things that you know you shouldn't be doing. Um, but you stand still, you get strong, and you do the things you need to do, especially when you don't feel like it. Um, that's the essence of uh, anti-fragile confidence as I practice it and teach it. 
think one of the reasons that people do the opposite or don't do that is in again in clinical practice one of the foundational concepts is avoidance and avoidance takes many many different forms and we know it's kind of addictive they're basic psychological principles that tell us about the the power of um negative reinforcement that comes from the sense of relief that people get when they avoid doing something that's uncomfortable but we have to face uncomfortable things to grow and to overcome problems but we get such a basic buzz or sense of reinforcement from going out and facing a problem and then running away from it. We get immediate relief. The easiest way to feel better is to run away from things that make us feel uncomfortable. You know, and that doesn't benefit. It makes us sick in the long term. It makes us fragile and weaker in the long term. But it's addictive, just like eating candy is we get a kind of immediate high from running away from danger. Like the quickest, easiest way to feel better is just to run away. Like, or yep. to go back in bed, get back into bed like, if yep. it's cold outside. But it doesn't damage us in the long term. So what we're working against, I think, often is just very simply this powerful, childish like drive, animal, animalistic drive to kind of avoid discomfort and to learn to yeah. t- become more tolerant of discomfort when it's in our uh, best interests. Yeah, and what do we train? I mean, this is Ward Farnsworth's great distinction, the good mood versus the good life. Yeah, you'll feel good for two to three to five seconds. How about even two to three to five minutes and hours, let alone days and weeks and months and years after? So that hedonic, eudaimonic, and I'm not sure people are lacking motivation as much as they are Uh wise counsel. I just don't think they're being given good advice. (laughs) And again, approach versus avoidance. We know that the healthiest among us approach their life's challenges vis-a-vis the the avoidance. So Phil Stutz's number one tool on that is echoed across the literature, but it's bring it on. So when you feel that pain, that uncertainty, that doubt, you feel uncomfortable, you're out of your comfort zone, we need to reframe that experience, that your potential, that eudaimonic life that you want to live exists outside of your comfort zone by and large. Therefore, how does it feel when you get out of your comfort zone? By definition, uncomfortable. So we need to take the truism of getting comfortable feeling uncomfortable and be warriors about it and actually practice when we feel that little niggle of discomfort, say, wait, 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 this isn't a sign something's wrong. Don't go numb yourself and avoid and retreat. Stand in it for a moment. And then we, you know, we had talked about targeted thinking before we came on. So my approach practically is in those moments, when you feel like retreating and numbing yourself, ask yourself what you want. Remind yourself of the ultimate game to be a eudaimon, to be a successful, whole, flourishing expression of your best self. All right. Well, if that's what you want, what specifically do you want in this moment? Oh, okay. You want to achieve this success in a relationship or business or health. Perfect. Get clarity on your target channeling our ancient patron god of philosophy, Apollo, take clear aim or teleological, and then what specifically do you need to do right now in order to be in integrity with that uh, and have the best opportunity to hit that target? Um, So translating these ideas into practical use, I think is, uh, again, what I admire in your work and what I aspire to do. But uh, we all know that that temporary uh, alleviation of, of pain leads to more pain. We just haven't been taught, I don't think, um, how to effectively address it in a reliable, believable, concrete way. We're just given more numbing agents in the form of, and again, there are times where it's appropriate to take different medications to deal with psychological challenges, but by and large, we're not, I don't believe, taught how to deal with it and construct that self that can handle any of life challenges. Yeah, We're, we're, we're prone to taking the easy way out uh, in many cases where it, it's it's not the best option for us. You remember, what you said about Ward Farnsworth reminded me of something that Albert Ellis used to say that I always liked. Ellis was the founder of Rational Emotive Behaviour Therapy, the kind of precursor of modern CBT, or the first form of modern CBT. He's a little Epictetus. His intensity, yeah, he was super God, into Epictetus. Yeah, yeah, he's kind of similar character to Epictetus, yeah. 100%. He used to say to his clients, he would say, there's a difference between feeling better and getting better. Hmm. And uh, so clients in therapy all the time will talk about stuff that they do that makes them feel better. 
Um, mm. Somebody who's got social anxiety might say they can, you know, take a couple of shots of whiskey and it makes them feel better. Um, but then the therapist might say, sure, it makes you feel better, but are you actually getting better? Hmm. Like, is it helping your problem? And then the client often looks a bit confused. Yeah, but it makes me feel better when I do that. And the therapist might say, well, how come you're here in the consulting room having therapy then? Like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, from what you've told me, it sounds like your problem is getting worse uh, over time. Even though you're doing all these things that you say make you feel better, you're also telling me that your problem is getting worse. It's not helping you to actually get better. Like, and sometimes you might have to do things that temporarily make you feel worse or make you feel uncomfortable in order to actually get better. And that would often be that would often mean confronting things mm. that you've been avoiding in the past. You mentioned targeted thinking as well, though, and the god, the archer god of Apollo came up. I wondered, I noticed at the beginning of the book you talk about targeted thinking, and it seemed to be a kind of springboard uh, for the rest of what you were talking about in the in the book, uh, or fundamental to some of the things you went on to say. Could you say a little bit more about what you mean by targeted thinking and why it's so important? Yeah, it's it's influenced by a number of different teachers. You know, the idea Aristotle proposed that were teleological, telos, of course, being targets. So happy people, flourishing people have clear targets. Um, and then, we, you know, to go back to the victim, vis-a-vis creator and hero shift. David Emerald wrote a great book called The Power of Ted on the um, the triad of being a victim, a persecutor, and a rescuer, um, etc. But he made a great point that the easiest way to shift from a victim who's complaining and criticizing and gossiping and whatnot to a creator, to a hero, as I would put it, is ask yourself a simple question. What do I want? So in any situation where we feel our, find ourselves complaining, First of all, recognize you're giving up your agency. Complaining is not helping you solve whatever problem you have. The fastest way to solve that problem is to identify what the problem is by asking yourself, what do I want? And there are very few situations in which the answer to the question, what do I want, is to complain and to feel you know, like I don't have power or any ability to affect this situation. So I find that that simple question, which is the first step in targeted thinking, after radically accepting or the art of acquiescence, as the Stoics would say, what is, is. You can't change that full stop, obviously, rule number one. What is happening right now is happening right now or has happened. You now have a choice to decide whether or not you are take control of your thoughts and behaviors. And I find that this simple process of accepting the art of acquiescence, setting a clear target by identifying what you want, then asking yourself, well, what might I be able to do right now to move toward that target? And then doing it, getting the data and repeating is a way to reclaim agency um, to you know, joyfully enter that discomfort zone. And again, to practice our philosophy. And What's more powerful than than the rule number one of stoicism? Accept and then decide how you're going to frame up, think about, and then respond to via your actions, um, whatever life is presented to you. And you better be at your highest and best the more challenges you're facing. It's it's a hero's journey 101 too. A hero is supposed to face dragons, not sidestepping lizards. So when we embrace the fact life is supposed to be hard, and then we use those challenges to get stronger as we practice our philosophy. Um, everything kind of slides in. But targeted thinking is a, is a way I frame that up. Personally, I tell the story with my son. It's, it's what I come back to more often than anything else. I borrow the term sometimes from Aldous Huxley and say, I call this a kind of perennial philosophy. You know, we keep coming back to it like throughout the ages because it's something from, so fundamental about this wisdom. In a sense, it should be obvious. It should almost, in a sense, be common sense. It's so basic. It's so fundamental. It's kind of recurring perennial philosophy. And I wanted to build on that by asking you, like, let's dig a little bit deeper into the role of philosophy and the work that you do. You talk quite a lot about wisdom. And that's actually, it's one of my favorite words. I often, particularly um, when I'm talking to kids, I, or to anyone really, I you know I'll often ask people how would you define what you mean by the word wisdom. You get some interesting answers when you ask hmm. children that question. And who wait who what's an example? Is this character in this movie wise or unwise? What did they do that was wise? 
And I know it's something you've thought about a lot. I wondered um, if you were to try and define what wisdom means to you, Brian, how would, how would you put that into words? What a great question and frame. And I immediately think of another word that philosopher what a beautiful word, a lover of wisdom, you know, this passionate pursuit of wisdom. I think in its simplest frame for me, it's it's knowledge of how to live a good life applied, you know, so that that sense of how to live a noble life and an ability to do so would be the embodiment of wisdom. But then I also like to think of the cardinal virtues a lot and the virtues that science has shown are most highly correlated with flourishing in eudaimonia. So wisdom um, I take temperance and I redefine it as discipline or self-mastery. Um, and then I take justice. And when I study the ancient Stoics, I see love ultimately. You know, justice is a very tepid word for a deep commitment to something bigger yeah. than ourselves. So wisdom, discipline, love, and then courage, of course. And then mm -hmm. I bring in the scientific virtues, gratitude, hope, curiosity, zest, and love again. And to me, mm -hmm. wisdom is knowing which of those virtues is called for in any given situation. Mm -hmm. where you may need to find that virtuous mean, a little bit too little of this, a little bit too much of that. And it's the expression of the virtue in the moment that is most needed from you in order to close the gap so you can live with arte such that you can experience yeah. that deep sense of, of eudaimonic joy. I love uh, Musonius Rufus's take on it, which is more important, theory or practice? Well, you need the theory. You got to know the basic framework. But clearly, once that's established, we need to practice these ideas. To me, that's the that's the philosopher. That's the activated, passionate, grounded um, practitioner of these ideas who is a warrior of the mind. Anything short of that is foolish. It's not wise. And, and that's exciting. Again, this is different than self-help because we're not chasing the latest real estate fad and talking about all the ways we can get rich quick and, and get the abs and all those things per se. We're going after the ultimate game and uh, the rewards are instant. The moment we close that gap and live with virtue and express our best selves, we don't need to wait for the extrinsic stuff. We've won. And then as we ag aggregate and compound those gains, I think that the people feel it. This is the seventh objective in my book is activating your soul force, that ineffable moral charisma that one can feel in someone who's committed to practicing their philosophy, which is what I see when I look at Epictetus, Aurelius, Churchill, Gandhi, these heroes of mine that had different facets of uh, their humanity heroically expressed. Um, it's wisdom embodied, right? You know, I'm a parent, you're a parent. What advice do you have about self-improvement, personal development, in terms of raising our children? How can we be good role models and offer the right sort of guidance to our kids? Well, I think that that was going to be my answer, is if we want to, and again, the etymology of the word parent, it means to bring forth. So a parent literally brings forth what? That which is latently, you know, potential, within our children. So to create the environment through which they can flourish. Um, and to me, to state the obvious, it all starts and frankly ends with embodiment. Mm -hmm. And as Ralph Waldo Emerson, my favorite American philosopher says, who you are speaks so loudly, I cannot hear what you say. So if all you're doing is telling your kids whatever you think they need to hear, and they know that you are not living in integrity with these ideals, good luck. Yet stated the other way, if you are committed to living with wisdom, discipline, love, courage, and the other core virtues we've been discussing, kids feel that. Your colleagues feel that. Your clients feel that. The world feels that. And again, this is where Arte comes back. It's the one, one word playbook for a good life, you know? And this is, I use my, my son, Arte. How do you even spell it? How do you pronounce it? What's it mean? That was the final, the first five chapters were the last ones I wrote. And I was thinking about how do I introduce this idea because it's it's heavy, you know, and 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 then my son didn't want to. He wants he's a loves chess. He wants to be a grandmaster. That's his that's his passion. And then he woke up one morning. We're supposed to go to a tournament. He doesn't want to go. And so we wind up having this conversation in which I talk about what it means to deal with your fear and your laziness and to live with arte and all these things. And so it wound up being the perfect construct yeah. to, to introduce these ideas. Um, but I think being 
the embodiment of the ideals, not perfectly, obviously, but striving to consistently practice it is the most important aspect of it. I'm also a really big fan of Carol Dweck and her research uh, in general, and particularly on the growth mindset vis-a-vis the fixed mindset. Um, teaching our kids to embrace failure, to embrace mistakes, to embrace hard work, to embrace the fact that life is hard and challenging is beautiful. I grew up the youngest of five kids in an alcoholic family. I had the most rigid fixed mindset had to be perfect, you know, forever. So the fact that my son truly understands that you win or you learn, it's not an abstract thing. No, it's great. The only way you get great, my kids, if they were here, Hey, how do you get good at anything? You practice. Yeah. Okay, cool. And then aren't mistakes awesome? And they'll say, yeah. Why? Because that's the only way you can learn. Where where was that lesson for me when I was growing up? So this idea of embracing um, that growth mindset, you know, the hard work, the the opportunities to learn, et cetera, you know, the top things on our list. And then again, the basic fundamentals, eating, moving, sleeping, breathing, focusing your mind. These are I think if the ancient Stoics were alive, they'd be talking about that a lot, yeah. a lot. Just the basic, be a good human being, take care of the uh, the, the foundation and, and build your life on that, you know? Yeah. I wanted to say also that there's something implicit in what you said just now and in your book, which I think is often missing from accounts and modeling. And I think you're absolutely right. The key thing with children is to set, a, set the right example. To, to be a leader, to be a, a role model, to show through your actions, you know, to go, you go first, like as a parent, like demonstrate the things you want your, your children to learn. But in that idea of modeling, there's, there's at least one thing missing, which was highlighted in the 1970s, in early research that was done on, on modeling behavior to children, which is that if we just demonstrate things through our actions, um, the, pro- the one problem is that other people can't read our minds. So they don't see what's going on inside us. They can model and observe our external behavior. But unless we give them a window into our soul and allow them to see what the thought processes are as well, they can't really model the internal activities hidden like within us. And one way around that is simply just to talk aloud. Like, and you kind of did that. You exemplified that when you were talking about your relationship with your son, you talked to him about your thought processes and so on. So it wasn't just your kind of external behavior. It's also your internal behavior that you're modeling. And I think sometimes people need to be reminded to do that. So first of all, model the qualities you want your children to learn. But secondly, you also need to be transparent about what's going on within you so that they can model that as well. Oh, I really appreciate you highlighting that and making the implicit explicit. Um, and that that's something that I'm going to bring into my teaching. Um, and two things came to mind. One, a lesson you taught me when I did an interview like this with you, that the thing that I do the most with my kids is I tell them about my challenges. Yeah. So you made the distinction that... that Modeling isn't always healthy. If it's pure mastery modeling, you feel overwhelmed. You want to give up because I'm never going to be like these guys. They're perfect. But when I look at my heroes, I look through the beautiful portrait. I see Lincoln who's on this wall and I see how beat down he is, mm-hmm. you know, how, how tired he is. And I know how much he suffered. So your distinction of mastery modeling vis-a-vis coping modeling mm-hmm. um, was really profound when we had our chat. And so what I do with my kids, like, you know, we launched the book, right? Blessed to have hundreds of five-star reviews. I get my first one star, right? And I immediately go through the cycles of author shame, you know, of, oh my God, I suck. Wow, oh, that and this. And, and, but then I literally went out to the, to the, you know, living room and I told my wife and I joked about it, you know, and, and then I told my kids, how do you think I felt? And how do you think I feel in my body right now? And then they thought about it and they said, well, you, and what emotions do you think I'm feeling? Well, you probably feel sad and you feel that in your body in this way and you probably feel angry. And they were so amazingly attuned to exactly what I was experiencing because we've done the reps to let them into my head. Carol Dweck says, yeah. anytime you face a challenge, she literally says, physically rub your hands together and say out loud, I love challenges. This is hard. That's awesome. I've said that an obnoxious number of times, my kids, and it never gets old. So now my son's playing chess. This is hard. This guy's great. Awesome. This is so good. It's it's a really beautiful thing to, 
to strive to practice it humbly yet as well as we can and then share our own challenges. When I eat the things I know don't work for me and I'm feeling tired, I say, remember when I was eating those things that you know don't work for me? Yeah, yeah, I felt this way. Then they're making the connection in their lives and it's a beautiful um, co-creative culture that we've created. Yeah, I think like it would be like if you were trying to get from A to B and somebody just showed you photographs of what, what it was like at B like it's really cool here like you know this is what it's like when you eventually get here that's what mastery modeling is is kind of like you know this is what's waiting for you when you eventually get to point b and you might think yeah but how do i get there like you're not showing me the path that lies in between and so coping modeling is more like saying okay as soon as you step out your front door from point a you need to turn left right and then right and then left this is how you actually get through the maze like through the labyrinth to get to point B, and this is how cool it is when you eventually get there. We, yeah. we kind of we kind of need both. We need the path and uh, some kind of taste of the the destination well, as well. Let's, let's bring it back to stoicism. So then, what I love about the Stoics vis-a-vis the Sophists of their era, mm-hmm. right? And Epictetus, you know, when you're done with one of his lectures, you should feel like you left a, a hospital, not yeah. a spa. So you leave in staggered, what, after a stoic talk, whereas you give a round of applause to the speaker that made you feel so good about your life. But I love Seneca's, no, no, I'm in a hospital bed next to you. Yeah. And maybe I've taken a step or two in a different direction, and maybe I'm even a step or two ahead. But I'm not on a soapbox up there. I'm in the same hospital as you that is life. And let's talk together about what we've learned and that humility that... Um, playfulness and the, the true grounded wisdom. I'm not trying to impress you with X, Y, and Z. It's hard. This is what's worked for me. What's worked for you. And and that, again, the coping slash uh, co-creative, whatever you want to call it, um, I think is a, is a beautiful model that, um, that they demonstrate that is missing often, I think, in our Instagram happy Photoshop yeah. world, you know? Yeah. I think the sophists were kind of like an echo chamber, like the, the internet risks becoming today you know they made a living out of winning the most applause and telling people what they wanted to hear and then the the philosophers like socrates um said you know we we have to tell people when they're wrong if we're actually Hmm. going to benefit them we've got to point out their contradictions and their mistakes and that that's it's painful to Hmm. have your mistakes pointed out um but you know that's we have to uh we have to be able to tolerate that pain and that discomfort if we want to correct mm. our mistakes and to improve. And I guess that, that leads me on to another question. I said earlier that my one of my hobby horses, one of my favorite subjects is anger. You know, I think of it as one of the biggest challenges that people face. I say I like to call it the royal road to self-improvement um, for the following reason. There are three main categories of negative emotion that people experience, broadly speaking. We usually talk about anger, fear, and sadness very simplistically uh, in, in therapy. And people who are frightened or anxious uh, tend to seek help. Usually they're quite motivated to come to therapy, broadly speaking. And people that are sad or depressed usually are, are motivated to seek help and come to therapy. But anger, the third main category of negative emotion, angry people are therapy dodgers. They tend to think everybody else needs to ther- be in therapy. It's you guys that have all got a problem. And so angry people typically don't self-refer for therapy. They end up in therapy because someone else refers them. It will be their wife or their husband, or they'll be in an institution like a school or a prison or the military, and someone else will say, hey, you've got an anger problem, buddy. Like, you should really go and see someone about that. But angry people typically don't. Or there's a self-righteousness about it. And that's why I think it's the royal road to self-improvement, because it's, in a sense, our biggest self-improvement blind spot. Mm. People know they need help with their anxiety. They know they need help with their their feelings of sadness and depression to some extent. They're more likely to seek it out, but hardly anybody seeks out help for their anger problems. And so there's a huge untapped vein there, an opportunity, I think, for people to heal wounds that are, are usually overlooked mm. and ignored um and so i that's why i think it's such an important subject to talk about and it was very important to the ancient stoics as you know we have a whole book by seneca on the subject now, i wondered if you have any thoughts about anger what do you see as the the problem of anger and what do you think the solution is 
Well, I'll tell you what, this is your next book? Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I can't wait to read your book, and I still need to read Seneca's book on anger, so I'm not going to be an authority on this um, and, and earnestly looking forward to reading your book on the subject. What arises from me, again, Phil Stutz talks about rage and cosmic rage, and one of the tools that I use that he's kind of um, encouraged me to consider practicing is when I feel that anger, that rage, to step back, to recognize the emotion and to see it, which is obviously always the most important, name it, mm -hmm. frame it, and yeah. be able to use it as the fuel for our growth. Um, and if we're so caught up in it, yeah. then of course, we're not going to be able to observe it. So stepping back, meditation is a big practice of mine. So 15, mm -hmm. 30, 60 minutes in the morning um, for 17 years now. So the ability to step in between stimulus and response and choose mm -hmm. a response. So simply being able to identify the emotion that we're experiencing, whether that's sadness or anger or fear, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but anyway, he has you strip away the emotion and look at what's missing in your life. Because anytime there's, in my experience, rage, there's something that's missing. And I tend to experience that the most. Obviously with kids, you get angry, you get triggered, and that's a great way to practice your philosophy. But it's, it's a more... Uh, it's a different um, flavor, if you will, than what I feel in business. So in business, when I'm working with a team and there's a flash of anger or rage, I like to do the quick analysis of what's missing here because there's something missing, whether it's a competence in a certain domain. And I want to remove the emotion in the individual from it and see what's missing and then use that, that um, energetic trigger as an opportunity to see what I want to go back to trigger targeted thinking um, and what I might be able to do to get more of it. Um, but I, I'm, I've just tapped out my perspective on it. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading your book, framing it up. It's not a subject I've spent a lot of time thinking about um, and really excited to hear your thoughts on it. You know, I heard an old wife's tale that if you learn the name of a demon or an evil spirit, you gain power over it. I think mm. that's something that we find in kind of folk tales and mm. you know and mythology and stuff um it's a trope that recurs and that yeah i'm reminded of that when you say that naming an emotion is a mm. way sometimes of actually gives us cognitive distance is to like the technical term that we sometimes use to yeah. to describe that there's something about it doesn't always kind of work or there's a knack to doing it you know but certainly we see that very often in therapy that when people find the words to articulate their emotions and to hmm. label them and name them in many cases that allows them to gain perspective on them and take a step back and that can that can give them more control in a, a number of very healthy uh, ways so i think that's very i think that's very important um well I think we've we're reaching the end. Uh, we've had, we've covered quite a, a few different topics today, and it's been a fantastic conversation as usual. Um, I just wanted to wrap things up by asking, you know, sometimes I say to people, you know, where should people go if they want to learn more about what you're doing or what are you doing next? And I feel with you that's a bigger conversation because you're doing lots of things and you've got lots of resources available for people to check out. Um, so I wanted to give you a chance to, to talk a little bit about that. What, what should people do if they want to find out about the work that you're doing? You've got the book that's just come out recently. Uh, that's now available online. Um, you know, what about your heroic? Do you want to tell, uh, tell people a little bit about what you do and how they can find out more? Yeah, I appreciate it. And you, um, Arate again, uh, you can buy that anywhere you buy books. Um, and then uh, Heroic is the app that we've developed and a coaching program that we've developed. So heroic.us is the web. You can find the app in your iOS and Android app stores. Just search Heroic, the training platform. Um, and we have a lot of theory in which I distill, you know, several of your books, Donald, and excited to read the one on anger, et cetera. Um, uh, dozens of the classics in, um, in Stoicism and Modern Science into quick summaries. And then we've got a practical tool integrating a lot of the ideas of setting a clear intention and, and being your best self. Um, and then we've got our coach program, which frankly is what I'm most excited about right now. I think this is the, the biggest opportunity for us to make a, an impact in the world. Um, you can learn more about that at heroic.us slash coach. So again, integrating ancient wisdom, primarily stoicism and modern science and practical tools 
to change your own life. And I think we're the only coach uh, certification program that actually requires you do the things we talk about, that you are a warrior of the mind. And again, we talk about that all the time in order to get certified. Um, but we've been blessed to work with um, people at, at some of the highest levels in the military, sports and um, the corporate world. Um, and then, you know, half the people that go through it just want to improve their lives. But uh, that's heroic.us slash coach. Um, and ton of other things, but those are the big ideas. And um, I just appreciate you. I, I've gotten so much out of our connections like this and out of your work. And just really looking forward to uh, Deo Valente, fate permitting the years and decades ahead of continuing to do great work together. Well, likewise, that's been fantastic. And I think another fantastic discussion. Um, so thanks again, Brian, for joining me today. Uh, we hope that everyone listening enjoyed the conversation as much as we did having that conversation. Please, everyone, share the link with your friends and subscribe to the, the newsletter to Stoicism, Philosophy as a Way of Life on Substack. Uh, for more podcasts and articles about philosophy, check out uh, the Heroic app, Arate, Brian's website. Thanks again for listening. And it's a goodbye from me, Donald Robertson, and from my guest, Brian Johnson. <laughs>